Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. You're listening to The Silver Stream, a journey through ideas in collaboration with invited guests. I'm Byzantia Harlow, a visual artist and the creator and host of The Silver Stream. Today we'll take a pause from the usual focus on visual artists presenting audio works to instead bring you a special episode for International Women's Day in collaboration with Andrea Shortell. Andrea has organised in feminist activist spaces for the last five years. Her interest lies in linking feminism to well-being and self-care. Her heritage as a Brazilian woman has shaped her love and fascination with spiritualism and astrology. She joined Sisters Uncut in 2015 and continues to campaign with them. Andrea has collaborated on The Silver Stream previously. In that episode, we looked out at the cosmos through the lens of intersectional feminism and discussed the reclamation of our universe as a tool for radical self-care and resistance. Welcome back. Thank you for having me again, Byzantia. So interestingly, this day started as a Women's Day that was organised by the American Socialist Party in New York in 1909. And that was an idea which then began to gain popularity in countries that had a kind of growing socialist ideology, such as Russia. The 8th of March became known as an annual day for women. It then became recognised and celebrated by Western feminists in the late 1960s, and then it was adopted as a national day by the UN in 1977. And these days, International Women's Day is something that's widely understood as, you know, as a day of celebration and commemoration for women and girls globally. Each year since about 1996, the UN has encouraged global participation by adding themes to each year. So this year, for example, the theme is Women in Leadership, Achieving an Equal Future in a COVID-19 World. Mm. And these yearly themes have really kind of been adopted by various groups and schools and unis. So, for example, the community centre that I used to work at in Tower Hamlets, we used to do it every year, which was great. We used to have kind of 300 women every year. So that was really it was it was great. It was really good fun. Um, And, you know, they're intended a kind of global awareness and to uplift and celebrate the achievements of women while also acknowledging the continued oppression that many face. And I guess I should say here, um, you know, when I talk about women, I refer to kind of the gender inclusion policy of Sisters Uncut, who recognise women as all women, trans, intersex and cis, and non-binary and gender non-conforming people. And I think that you know, ensuring our feminism is inclusive of all genders is paramount to our work. Definitely. And also this feminism needs to be intersectional. And, you know, intersectionality was a term coined by 
the law professor and feminist theorist Kimberly Crenshaw that recognizes the unique oppression that black women experience. Um, black women do not only experience racism, but also sexism. Kimberly Crenshaw said that, and I quote, not all inequality is created equal. And something that I read on the UN's website, which is really, really pertinent, is that, quote, an intersectional approach shows the way that people's social identities can overlap, creating compounding experiences of discrimination, end quote. And I think it's really important to talk about this when we think about the ways in which we, you know, as two white women organize and show solidarity for the collective. Um, and as Bell Hooks writes in Feminist Theory from Margin to Center, quote, when we show concern for the collective, we strengthen our solidarity. As International Women's Day is now kind of commonly associated with a global movement of empowering women and encouraging gender equality, I think it's also important that we remind ourselves that the origin of this day is rooted in class struggle and a vision of eradicating the current systems of oppression for all. I think what you're saying is so important as a kind of way to set the tone for this episode and what we define as woman for International Women's Day. Also, when we were talking, so we had like a, a meeting outside, we went for a walk the other day, and you were saying something really interesting about the kind of astrology around International Women's Day. I was wondering if you could just kind of um, speak a little bit about that now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I think it's really interesting to think about how these big dates in our lives um, fall under different zodiac signs, like people on the internet were laughing at why, you know, Valentine's Day falls in Aquarius season when Aquarians are often associated with detachment and emotional detachment, but, <laughs> you know. I mean, yes, I was dating an Aquarius in, <laughs> in January and then for Valentine's Day they were extremely emotionally detached. <laughs> but it's true, it is ridiculous that it would fall then. Right. But yeah, so International Women's Day falls in Pisces season, which is actually the last season of the Zodiac. So we've got 12 seasons and Pisces is the 12th. And, you know, I think a lot of us think about the 12 signs existing on their own with their own personalities and like really separate characteristics that govern different elements, emotions and aspects of our lives. But I really kind of like to think about astrology in terms of signs that blend into each other and progress. So Pisces season comes after Aquarius, which is the sign that governs humanitarian efforts, the intellect, collective action, human rights, you know, things like that kind of coming together, working together, thinking about how to make, you know, questioning the structures that we live under and really kind of imagining a different future, which is really amazing. Mm. But I also think there are lots of similarities with the Aquarian and Piscean energies. As we experienced in Aquarius season, for actually, which the majority of the American Black History Month falls under, the energy was very cerebral and intellectual. There is a heightened awareness of collective organizing and activism during this time. I think that both Aquarius and Pisces are signs whose main love language is acts of service. You know, there's this sense that this energy encourages a feeling of mutual aid, action, connection and social justice. Pisces is all about the subconscious, but it's about the subconscious and the collective. It's about now that we've understood what we need to do to make the change, let's all do it together. 
and Pisces will round off the zodiac. So essentially we're taking the lessons of all 12 signs and it's culminating into this moment. And I think that it's really interesting when we think about International Women's Day falling under Pisces season. And I think that ultimately fundamental human rights for all women, regardless of race, gender identity, sexuality, religion, physical disability, will serve the collective and we will all prosper. Definitely. I think maybe this is the perfect moment to hear the first sort of sound excerpt for the episode. Um, it's Audre Lorde reading her really powerful poem, A Woman Speaks. Let's listen to that now. More marked and touched by sun, my magic is unwritten, but when the sea turns back, it will leave my shape behind. I seek no favor untouched by blood, unrelenting as the curse of love permanent as my errors or my pride. I do not mix love with pity, nor hate with scorn, and if you would know me, look into the intrals of Uranus where the restless oceans pound. I do not dwell within my birth, nor my divinities, who am ageless and half-grown, and still seeking my sisters in Dahomey, witches wear me inside their coiled cloths, as our mothers did, mourning. I have been woman for a long time. Beware my smile. I am treacherous with old magic and the noon's new fury. With all your wide futures promised, I am woman and not white. So amazing. Um, find what does she say? Something like read me in Uranus's uh, entrails or something. It's just amazing imagery. Uh, so you sent me an article by Jordan Kistner um, in the New York Times where it's kind of she's writing about the dangers of undervaluing domestic labor. And there's a paragraph that I think is really relevant to mention here when we're discussing, you know, women and what this word may mean. Um, and I'll just quote from that now. What do you mean when you say women? I asked Sylvia Federici on one of our walks. To me, it has always been mostly in terms of a political category, she said, defining women as all those who suffer under the material conditions that have historically been assigned to women, which includes trans and non-binary people, intersex and agender people and queer people. And years like 2020 do not fall evenly on all women. And I think that is a very important point and one that probably leads into what you're going to speak about next. Mm -hmm. No, that's great. And I don't think we can talk about International Women's Day without mentioning Silvia Federici. I think she's an absolutely brilliant scholar who has paved the way for many thinkers. As you and I have spoken about in our previous radio show and, you know, your New Year's episode, I do a lot of work with... Um, domestic violence and the kind of how austerity has forced a lot of refuge spaces to close. Um, so I kind of wanted to highlight how the pandemic in particular is still affecting women um, who experience domestic abuse and women's aid who, but who do brilliant work 
they're a charity and they do brilliant work supporting women and families um, experiencing this kind of abuse. They released a report last summer that's called A Perfect Storm, the impact of the COVID pandemic on domestic abuse survivors and the services supporting them. The report looks at the impact of the lockdown measures on survivors' safety and how many more times they experienced abuse, how they felt emotionally, you know, in most cases, in kind of all the interviews that they did, women's mental health was severely impacted. Um, I think we often, when we think about abuse, we think of physical abuse, but we have to also take into account emotional, financial, you know, all types of abuse, and that has a huge knock-on effect on, on society at large. How their families and children are impacted, and finally, the report does a really good job of highlighting the need for more funding for services. So this research document found that between the 23rd of March and the 31st of May last year, there was a 40.6% decrease in the number of refuge spaces available for women needing to leave abuse. Um, I should also add that this is already on top of austerity measures, which has found that refuge funding has been cut by one-fourth since 2010. So on top of that already kind of decreasing provision of refuge spaces, there was already 40% less in a year, which is kind of shocking, really. Um, and I think that, you know, obviously we want to talk about the root of this kind of abuse, how abuse gets perpetuated in our society and how we can kind of challenge this. But what I think I kind of wanted to focus on in this section is you know some of the work that Sisters Uncut does in terms of putting pressure on local authorities and the government to reopen and to put more money into the refuge spaces. I know that refuges aren't the kind of be-all end-all solution and we ultimately need to get to a point where we can have conversations with perpetrators and challenge the root cause of why people abuse but I think that challenging local authorities to put more money into refugees is incredibly important and it's really, it's, it's kind of key in making sure that women's experiences of abuse are believed and they're valued, right? I did an episode, like a two hour long episode, a special for when we first went into like lockdown. It was called A Voyage and it was a collection of Skype um chats or things that people had sent me from therapists to psychoanalysts to monks to energy healers to psychics and one of the main kind of strands I'm sure you probably heard the episode one of the main strands mm. was like you know the therapist the psychoanalyst and the spiritual healers we were all kind of worried about the impact of this on the lockdowns on mental health and also domestic mm -hmm. violence um mm -hmm. And it's very worrying that both of those things have actually been so negatively impacted by this and the, the rates of both of those things have gone up. And, you know, I'm going to speak in a bit about the suicide rates that have gone up massively. Mm. So it is very worrying times when, you know, when your home is not a safe space um, yeah. or when you're cut off from people and isolated, you know, the toll that yeah. that can take mentally on people and physically yeah. is just, it's very worrying. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you, you, you will remember this also, but when we were told to stay at home this time last year in March, 
I didn't hear anyone in power, you know, acknowledge or recognize that home is not a safe space for everyone. And people live in huge amounts of fear and danger in every day. And it was only, I think, in the third lockdown that Boris Johnson kind of made that acknowledgement that said, you know, you are not breaking lockdown rules if you are fleeing a violent situation at home. But it, it shouldn't be an afterthought. It needs to kind of be in the in the in the public narrative because we know that three women a, a week are killed by a partner or an ex-partner. So there's um, an article that I read in the Science Times um, on the suicide rates in Japan for women. And what's interesting about this is Japan monitors their suicide rates much more regularly. Um, so although, yes, you could say like, oh, this is Japan, it could actually be a much more accurate representation of what's happening in the suicide rates. And I just wanted to quote from that article now. Suicides in Japan rose in 2020 to 20,919 from 20,169 the previous year, after years of decline since the economic crises of the 1990s. But while men's suicide rate was essentially static, it rose 15% among women, from 6,091 to 6,976. Wow. Michiko Ueda, a professor specialising in suicide prevention, said figures from last year show a clear break from previous trends. She believes that COVID-19 pulled the trigger and caused the suicide rate to rise. However, the data surprisingly concerns that the greatest increase is among women, which is not prevalent in Japan. The burden of operating from home, which may contribute to changes in domestic abuse or marital problems, and the difficulty of handling infant care through school closures in the spring are other potential causes. Thank you for highlighting that, Byzanti. It's really important for us to think about. And I think, you know, the increased pressure that has been put on care and domestic work has had a huge impact on women's lives in the past year. We think about how schools, when they closed down, it wasn't up to the schools anymore to teach those who are at home, it was up to the parents. And as we know, you know, the workforce is still incredibly gendered. Houses still need to be cleaned. You know, when someone gets sick with COVID, they're out for two, three weeks. So that, that puts a huge amount of pressure. What a lot of us need to re remind ourselves of is that we are keeping up appearances during a pandemic and a lot of us are finding it incredibly difficult and it shouldn't be normal. You know, Silvia Federici proposed that there should be wages for domestic labour, and I fully agree. That article um, by Jordan Kistner in the New York Times has some really, like, interesting, you know, quotes in it. So she's talking about an essay called Women and the Subversion of the Community, which was written by Darla Costa um, and Selma James. And the essay argued that by working without pay in the home, women were producing the labour force that capitalism exploited for profit. Um, and so there's this kind of idea of this anti-capitalist struggle mm -hmm. that many anti-capitalist feminists like Bell Hooks, Angela Davis, Wilmette Brown and the Kambahi River Collective have been arguing since the 70s, um, which is, and I'm going to quote from the essay, 
that the feminist struggle was necessarily an anti-capitalist struggle and that an anti-capitalist struggle must necessarily take up gender and race because capitalism oppresses women, people of colour and the working class. So this article is kind of talking about this growing hunger for a different way, um, a society that is less resistant to valuing human life, um, when it stands in the way of the profit for, you know, a rich, white and often male ruling class. Um, and a quote from it is a society that allows millionaires to stow their wealth in empty apartments while homeless families navigate the streets. When we're talking about women's struggle, we have to like frame it in anti-capitalist sort of sentiment, you know, I feel. And then this this idea of like the labour and this unpaid labour is like very important because that is the thing that kind of that props up the capitalist agenda somehow. Right. Absolutely. And it's interesting when we think about, you know, the origins of International Women's Day and it started off as a class struggle. And we we always have to go back to that. And I think, you know, in many publications and Instagram and it has been co-opted by this kind of girl boss culture. And, you know, feminists of the West in the 60s and 70s who demanded equal pay for equal work, that's fine and well. But, you know, white women in the West, the majority of which who were upper middle class, they wanted the power that white men had. They weren't questioning the existing structures of power or capitalism. They essentially wanted the jobs that the men had and you know these many of these white men did found it relatively unthreatening so that's you know this kind of girl boss feminism that was heralded by the ex-ceo of nasty girl actually so um, yeah it's got a long history of kind of you know Sheryl Sandberg from Facebook and Audrey Gelman and all these women who kind of think if you work hard enough you can get to where you want to be but that's still the bubble of the 1%. So there's a nice quote from Sarah Leonard's article on socialist feminism, which was actually in Teen Vogue mm -hmm. <laughs> in 2020. Um, and I'll quote, The COVID-19 crisis has revealed how little capitalism cares about life, how easily its stewards throw away the lives of the vulnerable. Against this, we can reevaluate life itself, putting care for one another over profit. As the state has cut more social services, like healthcare, childcare, welfare, women have disproportionately picked up the slack, all the while working jobs that typically pay less than those of men. This reality is unsustainable. And, you know, it is unsustainable. Mm. It really mm -hmm. is. And I love the quote by Sylvia Federici in Wages Against Housework from 1975. I quote... They say it is love. We say it is unwaged work. They call it frigidity. We call it absenteeism. Every miscarriage is a work accident. I mean, it's uh, such a powerful quote, isn't it? Wow. Yeah, that's, that's really, that's a beautiful quote by Zantia. Thank you. And I just kind of wanted to bring it back a little bit to present day and kind of look at the COVID-19 pandemic you know as it pertains to black folks and people of color you mentioned before um very succinctly that care work the majority of care work is done by women right 
And in the UK, the majority of care work is done, done by non-white women, um, and in particular, black women. So I think that the issue of race is incredibly important when we're talking about the, the kind of disparity between those who get to work from home safely and those who have to continue working in care homes and putting their lives at risk every day. And the majority of those people are non-white. And in no way am I kind of lumping black people and women together in, in a kind of a marginalized pot. I'm just, you know, I think it's really important to make that link. So, you know, Galdem is a really good resource run by and for women of color. And I think us white women can learn a lot from reading it. Um, Dr. Annabelle Soemimo, she wrote an article that investigates how disproportionately COVID cases among the black community um, exist and continue to, you know, continue to perpetuate within these communities. And she further questions the unhelpful homogenization of many races into kind of this BAME category, which is short for black and minority ethnic. You know, I find it really strange that you've got Irish travelers in this category, as well as, you know, Bangladeshis, you know, Afro-Caribbean. It's, it's, it's all homogenized and it's really, it's, it's kind of reflective of how racist our society is. But anyway, so Dr. Suwamimo, she reminds us that 99.9% .9 of humans are genetically identical. And so when we look at the COVID-19 cases and deaths among black people in the UK, and we find out that they're four times more likely to die from the virus, we kind of really have to interrogate the systems in which perpetuate and magnify this kind of structural racism. And at the start of the pandemic, there was one particular case that was really heart-wrenching. So Belly Majinga worked for TfL as a ticket officer, and she was killed by a man who spat in her face, and he was infected with the virus. So Belly had an underlying health condition and she still went to work despite this being during the PPE shortage. You know, you couldn't get a mask or a pair of gloves and you, you couldn't even buy antibacterial solution, but everyone was still going to work. We now know the amount of support and safety measures needed in our areas of our workforce. But, you know, what happened to her is unspeakable and we need to keep remembering stories like these to remind ourselves of the overt racism that black people and women face daily. And I just wanted to mention, um, I'm not sure if you've seen Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You on BBC iPlayer. It's absolutely brilliant TV show. One of the main things I love about this show is that it touches on so many issues. It's the, it centers around a sexual violence incident and it's tied up in her kind of wanting to share her story online in the era of Me Too and feeling really pressurized to do so and not feeling like she can go back and kind of have a privatized experience of that. It's really powerful, but... Mm. Oh, I've heard it's really yeah. good, actually. I should watch that. But just in the context of, of what we're talking about now with um, COVID cases, you know, she's in the NHS office in one of the scenes and she questions the doctor's statement he says to her that she's more likely to develop high blood pressure because she's of Afro-Caribbean descent. And she's like, hang on a minute. I'm African. I'm not from Afro-Caribbean descent. And she has this beautiful quote in the show that, said, that, she, that she says, there's a unity and distinction between those places. And as a London doctor, you should be aware of these things to avoid generalizing people of color 
and accidentally becoming a deeply problematic member of your profession. So I think that when we talk about structural racism, we often talk about it in the context of, you know, the metropolitan police or politics or things like that. But, you know, even though the NHS is the largest employer of non-white folks, the ways in which box ticking and form filling perpetuate this kind of discrimination against black people and people of colour is, is astounding. If anyone hasn't seen I May Destroy You yet, I highly recommend it. I think it's, especially for our conversation today, it perfectly captures how difficult and weird it is to experience sexual assault. So, but there's, of course, a massive trigger warning on that TV show. So the British Medical Journal um, has like an analysis on mitigating ethnic disparities in COVID-19 and beyond. And I just wanted to read some bullet points of that um, because I think it relates here and it's important. So ethnic disparities in COVID-19 are part of the historical trend of poorer health outcomes seen in marginalised ethnic groups. Ethnic inequalities in health are not accounted for by socioeconomic status alone. Racism in its various forms is a fundamental cause and driver of ethnic differences in socioeconomic status, adverse health outcomes and ethnic inequalities in health. And mitigating the impact of COVID-19 and other health inequalities in ethnic populations requires a recognition of the causes a commitment to openness and honesty and leadership and resources. You know, I think that when we talk about how we can challenge the current narrative, how we can challenge structures of oppression, how we can challenge these institutions that continue to inflict, you know, racial divide, sexual divide, gendered divide, we need to recognise that systems like patriarchy don't in fact support anybody i can't imagine every single white man on wall street is particularly happy right now you know i can't imagine every single white man is particularly happy in the city of london you know patriarchy is kind of this illusional myth in the same way that capitalism is that we can live the dream life that we want by consuming and consuming and consuming and oppressing so i'll quote from uh, bell hooks's all about love here where she says Masses of people are negatively affected by patriarchal institutions and, most specifically, by male domination. Since individuals committed to advancing patriarchy are producing most of the images we see, they have an investment in providing us with representations that reflect their values and the social institutions they wish to uphold. That's so true. And it really reminds me of an artist, um, Libby Heaney's work. She has been a past collaborator on an earlier series of my radio show. And there's a project of hers, which I feel is very, very relevant to this point. Um, and I'd like to just play now um, a voice memo that she sent in for the episode today discussing that project. Hello, my name's Libby. I'm an artist and a quantum physicist. Uh, today, for Byzantia's show um, for International Women's Day, I'll be talking about some of the artistic research I've been doing with representations of the body in machine learning data sets and um, thinking about how computers see and detect the body 
which obviously is really important in terms of surveillance practices and different modes of control. Um, I've also uh, been looking at parallels um, with which bodies are represented in machine learning data sets and um, in art history, mostly Western art history. And it seems to be that the same bodies are invisible or neglected. So for instance, um, I've been investigating public data sets. Um, so a data set is like lots and lots of data that's often captured in studios or taken from like our Facebook uh, feeds and so on, depending on the terms and conditions of the different platforms that we use. And uh, scientists train algorithms to make sure that computers can either like detect what's in the data, so in this case bodies, human bodies, or can even recreate their own representations of the bodies, depending on what you do. Um, so in these data sets, these are public ones, so usually made by universities. Uh, the reason they're public ones is I can't investigate the big tech companies because their data sets are proprietary, which means that they're essentially black boxes, only the people working on these projects in the companies know what they are. So in these public data sets, like 3.6M, so 3.6 million bodies, DFAUS data set, the panoptic data set, there's loads of biases. So for instance, there's no black bodies in two of those, very few black bodies in the panoptic data set. The panoptic data set is mostly young white men and some Asian young men. So these are probably students. But what this means is that when machines start to look at different bodies, it's much more likely to rec recognise accurately white men as opposed to black people or women's bodies. They can only really detect what's in the data set. Obviously, there's some blurred boundaries between what constitutes a man and a woman. I'm, I guess I'm using these categories because that's how computer science use the categories. Um, for instance, I tried the, um, an open-pose algorithm which detects bodies on pictures from art history. And of course, it easily recognises bodies um, such as Venus in Botticelli's Venus and Michelangelo's David. But when you start to show bodies that are black or with um, uh, hybrid bodies, sort of elderly, disabled, they can no longer no longer um, see them. And I mean, while I'm talking more widely about the body, not just about women's bodies, I think this is all an effect of the patriarchy. The effect is an effect of how tech companies and Insti university public institutions, computer scientists are largely men. Um, I know this because I worked um, as a researcher at different universities around the world in the field of quantum computing. And, you know, often I'd be the only wo woman in the, uh, in the office or in the department. And then your voice is less heard compared to when there's sort of wider representation. So I feel I feel like this is... Um, a woman called Caroline Perez wrote about this in her book, Invisible Bodies. She wrote how women and other bodies 
are missing from data sets, how this affects our health, women's health prospects, how this affects which jobs we get and so on. So it's a really data and women's representation in data and uh, representation of other marginalised groups is really important. I think it's something that's really worth investigating and reiterating time and time again. So the work that Libby is discussing there is actually um, something she's developing for space for an art and tech residency showcase. And she has actually sent an excerpt, just a one minute clip of that project for us to hear a little preview of that now. So let's play that now. Vitruvian Man, calm down, it's 1500 AD, it's faded. From a Greek search for perfection, selection and rejection, an ideal election. To steal and appeal, surreal, Leonardo's astronomical foring. His drawings are moorings, refining and dining on an alliance, the popular science. His intuitive handling is one understanding demanding less expanded norms. The forms of his supreme drafts are not Raths or Venus or Jesus or any type of genius. His dissected bodies collected, reflected, detected time and time again. Everybody's understanding at hand across the land needs a reprimand. So-called man of math. A sociopath, well, you can't say that, but trapping all figures in a square to compare is simply not fair. So um, when I was listening to Libby discussing her project, I was thinking of this article, We Can Enact the Future We Want Now, A Black Feminist History of Abolition by Lola Olufemi from The Guardian 2020, um, which I'd like to quote from now. What does abolition mean in the age of the internet? Using coding, hacking and other means of online sabotage to make it harder for the police to target vulnerable people. Glitch is a necessary erratum, a site of positive departure, writes Legacy Russell, author of Glitch Feminism and the chair of the panel System Errors. Through cyber feminism, we can make ourselves unknowable in order to outsmart the logistics of surveillance capital. Currently, law enforcement is using all manner of digital practice, including photography and Instagram posts, to track down and charge protesters. Um, and here it's kind of interesting because it's thinking about um, how technology can be harnessed in a similar way that Libby is kind of um, subverting these technological identification processes. Yeah, no, thank you. I think, um, you know, we've talked a lot about feminism, the history of International Women's Day, domestic violence and, you know, racial inequality. But I, what I really like to think about is how people are responding to it in creative and challenging ways you know, as an activist myself. So I wanted to kind of uplift the work of Mona Hatoum in her performance, I think it was from 1985, called Roadworks. So the artist walked through the streets of Brixton for an hour. She was barefoot, but she had a pair of Doc Martin boots tied to the back of her feet. And she walked very, very slowly, kind of implying the heaviness and the weight of the symbolism of these boots, because they were often associated with police officers and they were also associated with kind of right-wing 
skinhead, um, you know, racist people. And this work is archived in the Tate and you can kind of go read about it there. It's really fascinating. And what the Tate have captured is um, a quote from it. So I'll just mention here briefly. So Mona Hatoum recalled, quote, one comment I really liked was when a group of builders standing having their lunch break said, what the hell is happening here? What is she up to? And this black woman passing by with her shopping bag said to them, well, it's obvious she's being followed by the police. What I find interesting in this situation is that if we assume that the builders in this story, in this kind of anecdote, were white and male, they're not in a position to have to worry about the, the kind of oppress, oppression coming from a police officer. But then it's the, it's the black woman herself, as we talked about before, this intersectionality of race and gender. You are hyper aware when you suffer from these oppressions. You're hyper aware of the powers that be. And you are hyper aware that skinheads and police officers are not your friend. And I think that's a really powerful a powerful piece to remember with this performance and I always love talking about performance pieces because you because some of the most important stories you get from it are the reactions from the public. So I think this would be a really nice moment um, to play Maya Angelou's Still I Rise. Let's hear that now. Everyone in the world has gone to bed one night or another with fear or pain or loss or disappointment. And yet each of us has awakened, arisen, uh, somehow made our ablution, seen other human beings, and said, morning, how are you? Fine, thanks, in you. It's amazing. Wherever that abides in the human being, there is the nobleness of the human spirit, despite it all, black and white, Asian, Spanish, Native American, pretty, plain, thin, fat. Vowed a celibate, we rise. You may write me down in history with your bitter twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still like dust, I'll rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Just cause I walk as if I have oil wells pumping in my living room. Just like suns and like moons, with the certainty of tides, just like hope springing high, still I rise. Did you want to see me broken, bowed head and lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops, weakened by my soulful cries? Does my sassiness upset you? <laughs> Don't take it so hard just because I laugh. <laughs> As if I have gold mines digging in my own backyard. You can shoot me with your words. You can cut me with your lies. You can kill me with your hatefulness. But just like life, I rise. Does my sexiness offend you? Oh, does it come as a surprise that I dance? As if I have diamonds at the meeting of my thighs. Out of the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past rooted in pain, I rise. A black ocean leaping and wide, welling and swelling, I bear in the tide. 
leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise into a daybreak miraculously clear, I rise, bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave. I am the hope and the dream of the slave. And so, naturally, there I go rising. That was really beautiful. Um, I just wanted to touch on kind of mutual aid and community organizing and healing spaces that have emerged since the start of lockdown. And in March, we saw a huge amount of mutual aid groups prop up in bars across London and throughout the country. And they're organized by and for neighbors, run as WhatsApp groups. You could message, you know, to offer your availability and the skills that you had or what you were comfortable of doing, such as dog walking, childcare, things like that. And it seemed that if you weren't a key worker, if you weren't kind of on the front line, you were probably either on furlough or working from home. And that novelty of working from home and furlough coupled with the springtime, there was a huge sense of optimism and energy and this this desire to help each other. And that was really, really beautiful. There was a huge amount of energy that came from it. You know, people were able to rely on their neighbours instead of local authority support, whose services are already hugely oversubscribed because of austerity cuts. You know, at the beginning of the lockdown, I was still working at the community centre and we set up kind of a food delivery system for older, vulnerable people in Tower Hamlets who were shielding. But the problem with working for a community centre is it's very similar to the local authority in that it may take days or a week to get, you know, one referral into the system to make sure that they get a sandwich the next week. So... You know, mutual aid is there to give you immediate support. You you know, you text someone and say, I'm shielding, please can you get me X, Y and Z from Tesco's. Um, you know, this kind of community organising shines a light on what is possible when communities come together and face these challenges collectively. And these movements question the status quo and the structures that purport to support us. You know, so something that I've been asking myself is, are we able to live in a world where we depend on each other instead of the state. But I think what we really do need to remember is that mutual aid efforts and anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist and, and, and abolitionist organizing have been taking place long before this pandemic, most if not all of which was initiated by black scholars, community organizers and activists. As we've also discussed uh, with Silvia Federici's work, much of this kind of community care has been organized by women and more importantly, black women and women of color. And since the start of the pandemic, unfortunately, we've seen a lot of these mutual aid groups be co-opted by upper middle class white neighborhoods who have veered away from abolitionist anti-establishment practices to adopt a more punitive response to harm when it arises. So for example, you know, I'm part of the mutual aid group in my area and some, one white neighbor was complaining about, you know, a little bit of harm that happened. And instead of it being resolved among the neighbors themselves, you know, maybe the police would get involved. And these kind of external forces aren't necessarily needed in moments where a simple conversation could have happened instead. But yeah, I think when we recognize mutual aid as stemming from 
uh, black community organizing, there's a brilliant article in Galdem, which I kind of mentioned previously, that explains all of this in a much more succinct way that I could. We'll put a link um, maybe under the episode to it. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. And I'm not sure if you've noticed this too, but, you know, during the second and third lockdowns, the commitment of my neighbours and folks in my community to keep the, the momentum of this mutual aid has dissipated. You know, the lockdown in November was awful. It was really harsh. It was really difficult for a lot of people, but there weren't as many WhatsApp notifications on my group. And I, I know that that's the case for many other groups across London. I think most of us have really struggled to keep going. I think there's a fatigue, isn't there, to, um, and like a numbing to COVID in general. Mm -hmm. We spoke about this on the episode I did right at the beginning of lockdown, and my father's a psychoanalyst, and his predictions for the whole, he's also psychic, um, (laughs) but his predictions for the whole of what was going to happen have all come true. Um, You know, how long it would last, the long-term effects... The idea that we would have lots of um, protests bubbling up, mm-hmm. inequalities coming to the surface. Another thing is that we would all get this kind of fatigue because what it did is it sent everyone into fight or flight mode. We were no longer thriving. We were just surviving. And yes, of course, there was this optimism and there was this thing, but it beca- after a while, it's, it is in a way, it's a kind of um, survival technique that then you have to kind of shut yourself off a bit because mm-hmm. there's only so much... Um, news you can take in about huge death tolls Um, and it's not right really that you know of course mutual aid is wonderful but also the government really has to do better it can't Mm -hmm. be that 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 people can have that have to like you know pick up this slack indefinitely do you know what I mean yeah Um, and so I think people are just burnt out and exhausted by it but it's true that yeah the optimism of the first lockdown has definitely like dissipated for sure um and I think people also just seeing how hypocritical the government have been I think there's just been a general um feeling of disillusionment maybe Mm. which is a shame no you're so right and you're right in that mutual aid is not a replacement for local authority support but it's certainly calls into question perhaps the extent to which you know governing bodies and institutions such as the met police kind of govern our lives yeah you know people the whole thing needs a rehaul Mm, 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 exactly um and i think that it's it's great that we saw mutual aid energy kind of prop up in the beginning of the pandemic but it isn't something that we do you know, when we feel like it or to engage in, to enjoy its novelty. Or to make yourself feel better or something. Well, exactly, exactly. You know, mutual aid was started by people who, whose communities they belong to rely on it every single day. Yeah. So how do we, how do we kind of go back into that? How do we stop being in fight or flight mode all the time? And how do we kind of live together with, with mutual aid? You know, it doesn't have to be, mutual aid that's like emergency response 24 7 it can be something like okay you know your neighbor needs a pint of milk etc etc so going back to bell hooks and all about love which is just the most amazing book um there's a beautiful quote that i'd like to read now 
Knowing love or hope of knowing love is the anchor that keeps us falling into the sea of despair. And I think there is something about mutual aid and the idea of community care that can be this anchor, um, you know, and perhaps that is, you know, this idea of interconnectedness and support is something to, to sort of keep us out of this sea of despair. I love the this one, which is society's collective fear of love must be faced if we are to lay claim to a love ethic that can inspire us and give us the courage to make necessary changes. I think she's brilliant because I'm not sure if you've read um, C.S. Lewis's for The Four Loves, but in it he kind of distinguishes, you know, the four loves that you have, the one that you have kind of your God or your, you know, your the universe or whatever your spiritual practice might be, the love you have for your friends, that kind of agape, that kind of romantic love, and then the love you have for your community. And I think that this is something that Bell Hooks really kind of excels in. At the heart of mutual aid is a love for your community. And so, you know, she's... Her quotes are perfect for our conversation. <laughs> I mean, another amazing one, when greedy consumption is the order of the day, dehumanization becomes acceptable then treating people like objects is not only acceptable but is required behavior it's the culture of exchange the tyranny of marketplace values and that's what has to be resisted you know? mm. and love love in the in, for your community is a form of resistance you know mm-hmm. yeah it's radical it is yeah i think this would be a great moment to um Hear another memo from artist Ingrid Bertenoin, um, who is discussing her project, Lack It, Like It, which is a wonderful platform she's created within the art world and well worth mentioning today on International Women's Day. So let's hear from Ingrid now about that project. Hi, my name is Ingrid Bertenoin. I am a French European artist based in London. I work with sculpture, painting and text to examine the construction of gender identity and its behavioural consequences in our society. My project, I Like It, I Like It, started with an alliterative play on the words lack and like. It derivates from the controversial Freudian theory of the penis envy, when or where, young girls experience anxiety upon realisation that they do not have a penis. The text was originally printed on stickers that I stuck in public places or that I gave to women I met. It is, to this day, an ongoing spread the message activity. During the first lockdown, I decided to develop this venture further and to derail the somewhat negative notion of lack into something positive and assertive. I started interviewing women who work in various fields of the artistic and creative industries but mostly artists, curators, and writers. The questions are as follows. Question one, I like it, I like it. How do you interpret the slogan? Question two, to expand on the concept of lack, have you suffered from lacks in your life and career as a woman? How have you managed to overcome, adapt, or transform those lacks? Question three, what's your worst lack? Question four, what's your favorite lack? The questions are short, they seem anodyne, but once answered, they always reveal some personal lived experiences 
and I am extremely grateful that the interviewees accepted to respond in total candor. Some answers moved me, surprised me, humbled me, and some really knocked me out. You can find them on the Instagram account at LikeItLikeIt. On a wider spectrum, I am saddened by the lack of women's vision over the last centuries. Over forever, actually. I often wonder, when I wander in a museum and where mostly men artists are exhibited, what would women have painted or sculpted? What did they see? What did they feel? How would they have translated it? It always expands further. What would they have written about? What would they have invented? Or discovered. Women with knowledge, knowledge of life, knowledge of plants, midwife, witches, or maybe just simply women saw their erudition confiscated and appropriated by men. What has been denied to them is lost on us. I still feel this loss somehow. There might be less of a lack today. Still, there is a gap. So giving a platform to women might be a tiny drop in the ocean, but it has its purpose. It is important to promote women's voices, whether you like it or not, whether you like it or not. So actually I was um, part of this project. So Ingrid interviewed me for this, speaking about any kind of lacks that I had experienced as a female artist. Um, and I was, you know, quick to point out that I've had a lot of privileges, but I've certainly, as I'm sure you have, as I'm sure most people who identify as women would have experienced in the workplace. Um, so I think, you know, it's a really important project, not only celebrating women, but also discussing the challenges we still have to overcome. Everyone has stories to tell, but I think... Her project is really interesting because it does bring these conversations out mm -hmm. into the open and they need mm -hmm. to be had and these experiences need to be discussed. Dismantling these systems of oppression can only benefit everyone. No, that's that's really well said. I think sadly that's all we have time for, although we could discuss these things in much more <laughs> depth, of course. Um, this is just as much as we can do in an hour. But thank you so much for joining me, um, Andrea. It's always a pleasure to work with you. Thank you so much, Byzanti, for having me again. It's always a pleasure to come on your show and I'm really grateful that you've given me this space to talk about something that's hugely important and pertinent. And thank you, Libby and Ingrid, too, for your contributions to the show. Let's hear a little bit of an audio work by Ingrid now, titled Soft is Hard, featuring music by Mike Brooks, to play us out. One half of August, we would provide complete darkness, hot house, secret life, my personal universe, all in my order, with exceptions, as it is, not by chance, the promise of happiness, flagrant delight, in the art of the possible. Soft is hard, soft is hard, it just keeps getting better. Soft is hard, soft is hard, it just keeps getting better.